Good morning, everyone. Well, uh, happy Labor Day weekend. Hope everybody's had a good one so far. Uh, <clears throat> this week, um, well, last week we were at um, Ocean Grove, uh, but we were just finishing up uh, a series that we did called Bad Advice. And next week we have our, um, uh, our re reunion where we have Call Everybody Back, uh, Spirit Day. And we're going to start a new series next week. Pastor Chris has been working on that. Uh, it's going to be a good one. And then we had uh, this morning, and we didn't have a series, uh, so Pastor Chris said, uh, I'd like you to speak, and you could speak about whatever you want to speak about. Um, well, that's actually harder than if he had told me what to speak about, right? Now I got like the world is my playground, and I got to come up with a topic. So um, I ended up settling on one, um, and it could be a little unsettling for us to think about this morning. We're going to be talking a lot about blood this morning, um, and we'll get to that in just a minute. Um, so this morning's message is entitled, The Blood Cries Out. Now, before we get into that, by way of introduction, um, for those of you who know me, uh, you might know that I am something of a World War II history buff. Um, ever since I was a child, I was just fascinated by this conflict. Um, and eventually went on to be an engineer. So I think something about the technology, um, you know, with all of the, the planes and the ships and the tanks, you know, I, I think that um, was something that had my interest way back then. Uh, but then there's also this whole conflict about good versus evil. And in World War II, it was kind of really easy to figure out who the good guys were and who the bad guys are. Uh, it's not always that case, it seems like, in the wars that we fight today. But back then, at least in my mind, it was really straightforward. You had this country in the middle of Europe that just started attacking everybody and not minding its borders and just kind of overthrew everybody. Um, and then it was just a matter of the allied countries, including the United States, to try to push back on that and really fight for democracy and freedom. So it was really easy uh, to be um, pumped up about that. Um, so, several years ago, um, HBO came out with this um, made-for-TV series. It was called Band of Brothers. And it was not a surprise then that this series uh, went on to really become my all-time favorite uh, TV series about the war. And uh, it was about um, a company of paratroopers that actually fought in the war. Uh, they were part of the 101st. Uh, airborne infantry, and um, you know that the series kind of follows the different battles that they fought, including the Battle um, of D-Day, uh, and uh, you know because of the camaraderie that those men had in fighting alongside of each other, and that's why they called it Band of Brothers. And when we were getting um, set to actually put a men's ministry into place in Skyline, uh, we decided that that's what we wanted um, for the men in our church to have that same kind of camaraderie. Uh, so we called our men's ministry Skyline Band of Brothers. So you may hear that phrase around here from time to time. Uh, but next year uh, is actually the 75th year anniversary of D-Day, uh, when our troops stormed the beaches at Normandy and began to take back 
uh, continental Europe uh, from the Nazi regime. And um, we, Band of Brothers Skyline, um, are planning to go over there next year. We're going to take a one-week trip. We're going to fly to London. We're going to make our way down to Plymouth and then take the ferry across the English Channel that will actually mark out the same route that our men had to go. In the, and then we're going to uh, sightsee in and around Normandy, uh, see the beaches where they actually fought and several of the battlefields. Uh, then we're going to go on through Paris to Luxembourg in Belgium, where the Battle of the Bulge was fought. And then finally, we're going to end up in Berlin itself. Um, so uh, that's something that we're really looking forward to. Me and J.D. Vick have been planning that. And uh, you men are going to be hearing more about that in the months to come. We're actually going to uh, try to have you sign up as early as October, uh, because obviously it, it's going to take a little bit of money, and we want to give you time to do that. But something that we're really looking forward to. So why does the sight of blood creep us out the way it does? There's a sensation that we get when we see the sight of blood. And in the video, it started out with a pinpricked finger. And then by the end of the video, we were looking at a man that was on a makeshift gurney bleeding his life away, and they couldn't save him. What is it that is so profound about our blood? We get a clue in the Old Testament book of Leviticus, and it simply states there, for the life of the body is in its blood. You see, life is sacred. It's a gift from God, and therefore it is not cheap. God actually himself is life. Now, if we take something that's ours and we lend it to our neighbor, then it's no longer in our possession. We give it away effectively for a time. But think about this. God gives all of us his life, and yet he has all of the life that he still originally had. It's an infinite supply that he has. But the point is that it comes from God and it belongs to God. And only God has the right to take it back. If somebody takes someone else's life, it's an affront to God. And it's also why it's wrong to commit suicide. Because it's not really our life to take. Although we tend to think that it is. So life is sacred because it's God's gift and the nearest thing to the essence of physical life is our blood. And so that brings us back to the title of this morning's message, The Blood Cries Out. Today we're going to look at two separate individuals in the Bible who both bled and died. And each of them in that bleeding and dying has a message. Their blood is crying out a message. But actually the two messages are very different. The first individual that we're going to look at, we come across early in the book of Exodus, or rather in the book of Genesis. And it doesn't take long for the sin of Adam to bring about devastating consequences within his own family. We're talking about Cain and Abel. Now, I said it's Adam's sin that brought about those devastating consequences. I purposely didn't say it was Eve's, and that's because... We're going to get to that a little bit later on. Hold that thought. So, Cain and Abel. Uh, this essentially was the first band of brothers. 
but unfortunately, their relationship was not one that was characterized by camaraderie. It was more characterized by jealousy and deceit and conflict. So the Bible says that it was time for the harvest. Uh, they lived in an agrarian society back then, so you know, they raised their own crops and food. And, and it says that Cain uh, was a farmer, and Cain brought some crops as his offering at that time. And Abel was a shepherd, and it says that Abel brought his best sheep. In fact, it actually says that Abel brought the best portions of the firstborn lambs from his flocks. So I have a question for you. If Abel is bringing portions of the sheep, what does that tell you about the sheep? They first had to be slaughtered and then butchered, right? So he's not bringing a little pet lamb to God and saying, here's my pet lamb. No, he had to kill it so that it would actually be a sacrifice, now, the interesting thing, and, and at this, when we read this, I think we have to stop and pause and say, you know, why is this? That God accepts Abel and his gift, but he rejects Cain and his gift. He doesn't only reject Cain's gift, he rejects Cain himself. And that sounds a little harsh to us. The Bible doesn't say exactly why, but I think we can infer two possible reasons for this. The first one is in the words that are used. Cain brought some crops. Abel brought his best sheep. So Abel brought the best. And I would submit to you that God deserves our best, not the leftovers. Cain brought what I feel is the leftovers. He separated out the best for himself. And then what was left over? Oh, I'll give that to God. How do we operate in our own lives when we have that choice? Do we set aside what's best for God and give that to him? Or do we hold that back for us? Well, there's another reason I think that uh, Cain's sacrifice was rejected. And that's the type of sacrifice that they were. Abel brought a blood sacrifice. And Cain's obviously was a non-blood sacrifice. Knowing what we know about the rest of Scripture, I think that that last reason had a lot to do with why Cain's sacrifice, his offering, was rejected. So Cain's response is to get angry, and then to sulk, and then to plot revenge. I'm wondering how many men out there, when you get angry, you sulk. You kind of just go off into a corner. It's like, well, I can't have my way. I'm just not going not gonna to participate, right? That's what he did, but he took it a step further, and he actually plotted revenge out of that. We're going to pick up the story in Genesis chapter 4 and verse 8. One day, Cain suggested to his brother, this is a lie, let's go out into the fields. Actually, it was just deceptive what he was doing here. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel, and he killed him. Afterward, the Lord asked Cain, where is your brother? Where is Abel? I don't know, Cain responded. Another lie. Am I my brother's guardian? Now, I can just see that that had to be, you know, just dripping with sarcasm, right? Am I my brother's keeper? Am I my brother's guardian? Like, 
what do you expect from me? He's still mad. Um, but the Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. So this is the first recorded premeditated murder in the history of the human race. And it was only one generation removed from Adam, from Adam's choice to distrust God and to put his trust in his own choices. So the first voice that I want you to notice today is the voice of Abel's blood. And the blood of Abel cries out for vengeance. It's kind of like that that justice that we, we all understand, right? When somebody who's innocent, their life is taken, there's a thing called justice. And deep down inside of us, we know that that demands vengeance. And so does every other life that's taken before God's appointed time. If the voice of blood is the voice of life, then the voice of blood shed is the voice of life violated. It affects us in a profound way, just like those scenes that we saw in the video, and it should. So very early in the Bible, God establishes a precedent that the blood of an animal must be shed to cover over the sin of a man or woman. Fast forward from Abel to the time of Moses and the nation of Israel. God had raised up the nation of Israel. It was originally his promise to Abraham that I would make out of you a great nation. Uh, that nation grew, but it grew up in, in the slavery that was Egypt and the Pharaoh. And then God, through a series of miracles, brought Israel out of Egypt. And at that time, God uh, spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai, and he gave, that, gave him the Ten Commandments. And this was the signaling of a covenant that God was making with the nation of Israel. And it wasn't just the Ten Commandments that he gave them at that time, but he gave them a series of laws and regulations that they were to follow. Now, a lot of them had to do with them just being able to stay healthy as they wandered out in the wilderness. A lot of them were dietary and health-oriented um, regulations. There's a whole series of regulations that governed how they were to worship God. And part of that was the priests had the responsibility to do these blood sacrifices on a regular basis so that the sins of the people could constantly be covered over, constantly be covered over. The Jewish holiday of Yom Kippur is going to be fast upon us, and that is the highest holy day in the Jewish calendar. And in order to give us some background on that, I want us to go through uh, the Hebrews book in the New Testament of uh, uh, the, the book of Hebrews, chapter 9, it gives us some important background so we can understand what Yom Kippur was all about when it was first instituted. So follow along with me um, as we read through uh, Hebrews chapter 9. That first covenant between God and Israel had regulations for worship in a place of worship here on earth. There were two rooms in that temple. In the first room were a lampstand a table, and uh, bread, sacred loaves of bread on the table. This room was called the holy place. Then there was a curtain, and behind the curtain was the second room called the most holy place. Now, he goes on to explain then what the artifacts were that was in the most holy place. 
Uh, among them were the Ark of the Covenant, which uh, gained a certain kind of uh, pop uh, culture status when um, they made the movie Raiders of the Lost Ark. That's what Indiana Jones was looking for in that first movie, the Ark of the Covenant. Um, so he describes all of these things, and then he goes on in verse 6, and he says this. When these things were all in place, the priests regularly entered the first room as they performed their religious duties. But only the high priest ever entered the most holy place, and only once a year. And he always offered blood for his own sins and for the sins the people had committed in ignorance. See, even if they didn't know that they had committed a sin, that was still an affront to God, and it had to be covered. By these regulations, the Holy Spirit revealed that the entrance to the most holy place was not freely open as long as the tabernacle and the system it represented were still in use. So I want you to get the picture here. The high priest, he's got these priestly robes, this whole garment thing that he put on, and he put that on whenever he went into the first chamber. But when he got ready to go into the second chamber on Yom Kippur, the high holy day, they would actually attach bells to his robes. And the reason they did that was they wanted to know if he was still moving back there because it was a chance that he wouldn't actually come out alive if he didn't do everything exactly right. That's how scary the presence of a holy God was to them. And then besides the bells, there was one other thing that they added. They tied a big, thick rope around his waist. And then he went in. And if they stopped hearing the bells, and if the worst happened, they could drag him out by the rope because they weren't going back behind that curtain because they too would be killed in the presence of a holy God if they weren't properly covered by this sacrifice. It had to be done just so. So, uh, skipping a little bit here, um, I'm wondering if you've ever had um, a song that you've sung, um, a worship song. You've sung it many, many times. But for some strange reason, this one time when you sing it or when you read the words, it suddenly kind of takes on a new, fresh meaning. There's, there's something that the Holy Spirit tells you about that that you didn't know before, and it, it just kind of pops. That happened to me this week as I was preparing this message. The song is the one that we sang this morning, O Come to the Altar. What is the next line in that song? Work through it. The arms of God are open wide, or the Father's arms are open wide. Do you realize that the Father's arms have not always been open wide? They are today, but they weren't back then. In fact, everything about this thing that they did where the priest went back there, everything about it cried, you are not holy and you do not belong in the presence of a holy God. And his arms were not open wide at that time. The book of Hebrews goes on to explain that this whole Jewish sacrificial system was only a temporary system until a better covenant could be established. And Jesus came to bring that better covenant. And that's why when John the Baptist saw him approaching in the wilderness, he cried out, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. 
It was based on him being the sacrifice, the lamb that was going to be the sacrifice. You see, Jesus' mission was to die and to shed his blood so that he could pay for our sin. Unlike Abel, Jesus wasn't murdered. He actually willingly gave himself over to crucifixion. He willingly gave himself as a sacrifice because that was always the plan. His blood became the sacrifice and he took over the role that the high priest had back in the days of the tabernacle. So back to Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11, it says, So Christ has now become the high priest over all the good things that have come. He has entered that greater, more perfect tabernacle, where? In heaven, which was not made by human hands and is not part of this created world. With his own blood, not the blood of goats and calves, he entered the most holy place in heaven once for all time and secured our redemption forever. And notice that Jesus doesn't offer his blood over and over and over again. He doesn't offer his blood at the heavenly altar every time you sin. And when we come to him for forgiveness, it's on the basis of his one-time sacrifice for all time. And you only need to do that once. When he visits you with his salvation, you've got it, and you can't lose it. Now, we do need to confess our sins when we... But when you come to him for forgiveness the first time, that's for all the sins you've committed. That's for all the sins you ever will commit. Because he settled it up there when he presented his blood one time for all time. This is my communion prop this morning. Now, this is what we use here at Skyline when we have communion. And we take uh, the bread and the grape juice as a reminder that Jesus offered his body and his blood to pay for our sins. Now, this is grape juice, and it never becomes anything else but grape juice. What we do, we do in commemoration. We do it as a memorial. We do it as a reminder. Now, there are some people who believe that it actually turns into the blood of Jesus when they take it, and that somehow is what is saving them. But Jesus offered his blood once. If that were the case, he'd be being crucified over and over and over again, and that's not the case. He's not on the cross anymore. He's at the right hand of God in heaven. So remember that when we take communion. So by now, you have guessed who the second person is that shed his blood and died and has a message for us today. It's Jesus himself. But if Abel's blood cries out for vengeance, what does Jesus' blood cry out for? The writer of Hebrews tells us in chapter 12 as he brings his whole letter to a climax. Hebrews 12, 24. You have come to Jesus, the one who mediates the new covenant between God and people, and to the sprinkled blood which speaks of forgiveness instead of crying out for vengeance like the blood of Abel. So the blood of Jesus cries out for forgiveness. Now, a few notes here about forgiveness. At Skyline, we believe that a relationship with God is based on the promises that Jesus makes to us, not the promises that we try to make to him. 
It's an important distinction. And there are many promises that Jesus makes to us. I encourage you to dive into your Bible and dig out those promises every day. But there are four big ones that we've identified at Skyline that we feel are really the basis for our identity as a child of God and as a Christ follower. And on your program, on the back of your program, there's something called the Skyline Growth Path. And there we have the four building blocks that represent those four promises. And the one at the bottom is the promise that Jesus says, I am forgiven. So it's not because I have to feel forgiven, but it's because Jesus said that's who I am, that I can believe that and I can live out my faith based on that. Understanding forgiveness is the basis of all of the rest of our growth in Christ. So all the other blocks build off of that forgiveness block. It sounds simple, but there are a lot of Christians, I think, that get tripped up by this. Either they think that there's something that they have to add to Jesus' blood for them to be acceptable to God, or they think that they have to keep on asking Jesus to save them, right? Like that they asked them once, but if they do something bad and then they don't ask him again and they die in that moment, they might not go to heaven. The Bible doesn't teach either of those things. Jesus' mission to provide forgiveness was completed when he offered his blood once for all at the altar in heaven. So now the question is, why is Jesus' blood able to do what centuries of other sacrifices could not do? It is the reason why his blood is so precious. Remember the next line from the song that we sang? Forgiveness was bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. So earlier I referred to Adam's sin as the one that doomed the human race. Why wasn't it Eve's sin? She sinned first. And that's because the sin nature is passed on to our children through the seed of the Father. And that's why Jesus had to be born of a virgin. See, God bypassed the original sin that we all get through our biological father by substituting the Holy Spirit for his biological father. And that's why when Joseph found out that Mary was pregnant and it wasn't by him, he was going to put her away privately, it says. He was going to do a decent thing because she would have been ostracized in that community. And God sent an angel to Joseph and said, don't do it. What is conceived in Mary is from the Holy Spirit. So God had a plan to keep original sin out of the bloodline of Jesus himself. Now, there's something else that gets taught in some churches, and um, quite frankly, I don't see it in the Bible, and that's called the Immaculate Conception. But that doesn't refer to Jesus. That refers to Mary, his mother. So some people think that for Jesus to be sinless, then his mother had to be sinless. But that's not, that's not the way it works. I explained to you, it comes through the seed of the Father. And I always had this question, like, well, so if she had to be sinless so that Jesus was sinless, then who had to be sinless so that she was sinless? Like, it just keeps going, right? Like, as far back as you want to carry it. So Jesus was not tainted by original sin. And then the Bible says that he grew up and he was subject to the same 
temptations and trials and weaknesses as we are every day, yet every time he made the right choice, every time he was without sin. So Jesus was not tainted by original sin. He was not tainted by actual sin. It's the two things that condemn us. Therefore, his blood was pure. And so the blood of Jesus cries out for forgiveness, but the reason that it, it can is because of its purity. i got to catch up to my notes. So I want to say that clearly. Jesus, the blood of Jesus is precious because of its purity. Secondly, the blood of Jesus is effective because of where it was presented. It was presented at the true altar in heaven. So again, when we sing the song, O Come to the Altar, we're talking about the altar that's in heaven, where Jesus has already sacrificed his blood. Jesus presented his fully human blood, untainted by sin, as the only effective sacrifice for our sin. See, Jesus was unique. He was fully God and fully human at the same time. There's been nobody else like him. But it's not as simple as that Jesus just died in my place and therefore I don't have to die. The Bible actually teaches that for believers, when Jesus died, we died. We died with him. We are joined to him, united with him in such a way that his death becomes our death so that his resurrection can become our resurrection. That's the picture of baptism. When we see somebody go down into the water and come back up, it's picturing that we're united with Jesus in his death. And what do we die to? We die to sin. We die to our selfishness. We die to our old way of life. That is past. And we are raised to a new life, a resurrected life. So forgiveness is based on the fact that we die with Christ. And the truest test as to whether you've really embraced his forgiveness is who are you living for? Are you living for him or are you living for yourself? Are you bringing your best or are you keeping your best and bringing the leftovers? It comes right back down to that same thing that we saw in the book of Genesis. So what can we take away from today's message? Number one, life is sacred because it comes from and ultimately belongs to God alone. Number two, Jesus offered his untainted blood at the true altar in heaven, once for all time. Number three, every time you have a queasy reaction to blood, it's a reminder that the blood of Jesus cries out, not for vengeance, but for forgiveness. And forgiveness is the foundation of your new life in Christ. So what do I want you to do today? Very simple, but very profound. I want you to embrace his forgiveness. If you've never received it, I want you to reach out for it today. He offers it as a free gift. All you need to do is turn away from your sin and turn to him alone as your savior. He is calling you to the altar today. If you have already received his forgiveness, your salvation has been secured forever. Delight in that. Appreciate it for all it's worth. Because after all, 
It was secured by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, I thank you this morning for pointing out to me and then pointing out to the rest of us this week that your arms are open wide, but it hasn't always been that way. Father, sin is a terrible blight on our humanity, and it takes drastic measures to atone for it, and that's what Jesus did. He bled and died his pure, untainted blood and then brought it to the altar in heaven, the same altar that we can go to to claim the forgiveness that he offers to each one of us. Father, I pray that we will embrace that forgiveness either for the first time or in our spirits uh, again because we understand a little bit more about the cost and the preciousness of your blood. In Jesus' name, amen.